0: Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $149 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. ClearBridge telers our strategies to meet three primary client objectives in our areas of proven expertise, high active share, income solutions, and low volatility. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. So here we are recording on July 23rd, and it's hard to believe that we're already halfway through what has been one of the more interesting and, in many cases, tumultuous years for stocks in the economy. Market moves in the first half of the year were some of the most rapid I've ever seen, with it taking just 22 days to end the longest bull market on record, and then just 15 days for the latest bear market to run its course. To help me with these, dare I say, unprecedented times and put them in perspective, I'm excited to welcome Scott Glasser. ClearBridge's co-chief investment officer, and a portfolio manager on the appreciation and dividend strategies. Scott, welcome back to the booth.
1: Thank you, Jeff.
0: Now, Scott's going to offer his views on equities for the rest of 2020 while I cover the macro environment supporting stocks and our latest podcast titled, The ClearBridge Mid-Year Outlook, Managing Through Uncertainty. Now, Scott, I believe the last time you were here was December 2018, and we had another period of heightened volatility, and it gave way to a strong market recovery in 2019. Now, so far here in 2020, the script has played out very similarly, but the big difference is that the pandemic leaves our economy in a vulnerable position on multiple fronts, and unfortunately, it has us recording from our virtual podcast booth for the fourth time this year. So, Scott, I want to thank you for joining me here from New York. Well, I'm here in my home base in New Jersey, which is just a couple of bridges and tunnels away. And as always, everybody, we'd love to get your feedback about the topics we cover on our podcast and how we can make them better. So you can contact us with questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing us at podcast at So Scott, obviously we're in the, the virtual podcast booth. It's a, a little bit more cozy than what we would traditionally go to in New York, right? We can wear slippers if we want in, in this booth. <laughs> So obviously, it's been an interesting start to the year. And uh, I I think if I would have said at the beginning of the year that the US economy would lose 40 million jobs in the space of four months, and at the same time, the NASDAQ would be up 17% year to date, you probably would have thought I'd lost my mind, right? A lot of our listeners, probably half of them would have ended the podcast right when I said that. But that's exactly the situation that we find ourselves in. And we basically had four years of market action over the last four months. And one of the biggest issues that a lot of investors are struggling with is this divergence between the economy and financial markets. And Scott, I want you to be able to tackle this question. Does the pace and the magnitude of the market rebound raise potential red flags? I mean, have we gotten a little bit too far ahead of our skis here?
1: So let me talk about a couple of things related to that. Um, The first thing I'd like to kind of focus on is it, it truly is unprecedented times? Um, there is no historical analog to compare this to. I point that out because you do hear and you do read a lot about past recessions, past periods where you you had a you know uh, you come out of it and how long it took and and all these other factors. And and I, I do think it's really important to start with the the fact this is unprecedented. And so all the issues we talk about have very little historical context into which to make comparisons. I'm not surprised by the pace and the magnitude of the rebound, and I think we need to take a step back. The reason I'm not surprised by the magnitude of the rebound is because the decline was so fast, and it was unprecedented. The depth and the speed at which we declined was unprecedented in in, in market history. Fortunately, The Fed was, and the U.S. government from a fiscal standpoint, was very aggressive in terms of providing liquidity. And we'll talk about liquidity in more depth later. And then you saw the market rebound, um, you know, very quickly. And so both the decline itself was unprecedented and the rebound was was unprecedented. When I think about the market today with the rebound we've had and I think about what's likely to happen over the next six months, obviously there's a number of events that could create volatility over the, over the next six months. And we obviously have had a tremendous volatility over the last six months. Um, but when I try to put numbers around it and I see uh, where we are, I really kind of come to the conclusion that, that from a market standpoint, from a market outlook standpoint, i come to a very unexciting kind of neutral outlook over the next 6 months and and if i had to put numbers around it i kind of think of a 4 to 7% upside from here scenario and a 4 to 7% downside scenario so pretty symmetric not significant upside not significant downside i do believe that downside has been taken away by the liquidity that's being provided and that puts a, a put under the market and provides that downside protection. And, and really, it's unprecedented in terms of both what the US government has done on the fiscal side and uh, what the Fed has done in terms of providing liquidity. When I think about and I try to say whether this in fact is justified, the rise that we've seen, I do believe both the pace and the magnitude are justified. And I do that by looking at a couple of factors. And the main factor I look at is trying to get a sense of the market's internals. Until I would say just recently, recently being the last couple of weeks, uh, the market has actually been supported by pretty strong breath statistics throughout. So what does that mean? It means the advanced decline lines for operating companies and non-operating companies have recently made new highs. It means the number of stocks above their 20, above their 50-day moving averages are at healthy levels. And so the magnitude of the rebound has been quite significant. Small caps have lagged, certainly. But small caps also were down 62% on average from the top to the bottom. And so there's a math factor working there where while they've had substantial uh, gains, they've lagged the other mid caps and large caps. There are some things that have happened more recently in the market that, that create some worries longer term. And I would describe those worries as kind of elevated and not extreme, and we'll talk about them when we talk about some of the more of the the risks that have happened and some of the action of the more momentum-oriented stocks. But when I look at the market now, I do think the current gains have been justified, and I see kind of a neutral outlook as we go forward. But there's a lot of events that will happen over the last six months that could impact those uh, upside-downside scenarios.
0: Now, Scott, you mentioned the word unprecedented. It's funny. We have a chart in our uh, our chart book that shows the number of Google searches with the word unprecedented, and it absolutely skyrocketed once COVID-19 hit U.S. shores. And, you know, obviously, one of the the questions that we get is, is the recession over? And I think, obviously, one of the key reasons why the markets are up substantially from here is that the recession very much indeed is over. Given kind of the mechanical nature of the shutdown of the economy and the reopening of the economy... The trough has been put in, economically speaking. Now, whether it was May or June, we're not going to know until the NBER officially designates it, and that will probably be sometime next year. But the recession is over. Now we're focusing on where the economy can ultimately come back online at. And with the recession being over, that does rhyme with the output that we've seen with the ClearBridge Recovery Dashboard, a group of nine variables that have done a really good job of being able to foreshadow a durable, and I do stress the word durable, economic and market bottom lot announcing where our goals to go from a recessionary red to a yellow improvement to a green expansion and we saw the entire progression of the dashboard over the second quarter which tells us that gives us the confidence to say that we've seen the bottom of the markets and also the bottom of the economy but one of the indicators on that dashboard that has us concerned and it's not a green yet is jobless claims now most people look at the headline jobs reports to you know think about where we are in the labor markets but what really matters in in my opinion is jobless claims so if you look at the headline jobs reports in june it was a blockbuster number we added 4.8 million jobs that was after a 2.7 million job creation in may and those were you know huge huge upside surprises and you know i don't want to take any you know shine off of those reports but those reports need to be put in context first off if you think about the june report that only takes data from mid may to mid june and if you think of the back half of June, a lot of the Sunbelt was being hit by a rise in coronavirus cases, and a lot of states either delayed or reversed the reopening. So I think that's probably going to weigh on the July number that we're going to see. Also, kind of given that start-stop of nature of this recession, employment fell sharply because of shutdowns, but then when activity came on very quickly, and a lot of people transitioned back into their jobs because of the Paycheck Protection Program and the stipulations that were in, embedded in those uh, grants to small businesses. So I think a lot of those easy gains were, have been made in the jobs reports are not necessarily reflecting the true weakness in the U.S. economy. And if you looked at the jobless claim number that we saw this morning, it came in at $1.4 million. Now, that is a great number compared to where we were back in late March, where we were closer to $7 million. But 1.4 million is still double the previous record that we had in 1982, and claims are actually rising for the first time since March. And more importantly, a lot of these job losses are going to be permanent rather than the temporary variety that we saw in April and May. And with 1% of the workforce being laid off right now, 16 weeks into this crisis, you know, it's not because you know your people aren't able to access the state unemployment office or because businesses are forced to shut down. This is just genuine economic weakness. And it really could be a sign that a lot of these small businesses are shuttering their doors. And also a lot of these larger businesses are really looking to stay lean given the uncertain economic backdrop. So what I'm really looking for for you know where the economy can ultimately come back online at is I need to see these jobless claim numbers come down to where you'd see in an average recession, somewhere in the five, six, seven hundred thousand per week range. But if we remain in this one million plus range for the next call it month, month and a half. And that's a very bad sign that the hangover that we're going to see, at least economically speaking, is going to be with us for for longer than consensus expects. But but Scott, I want to to talk about this idea that you mentioned here a second ago about liquidity. Again, this divergence between the economy and equity markets. Talk about maybe what liquidity is and, and why it's so important to equities overall. Right. So I think you've set up the
1: central debate in the market. And it's a heavyweight battle between liquidity, and I'll define that in a second, and really economic fundamentals. And liquidity really is the availability of money. And it's, and it's not only low interest rates. It's, again, it's the availability of credit. It can be commodities. It could be the price of commodities. It could be dollar. It's anything that provides credit availability or the ability for people to expand their balance sheet and continue to either borrow or invest, or do things that create further demand. And the Fed, as we talked about, and and I suspect, Jeff, you'll talk about this in a little bit more detail, has taken up a number of positions. One is they've lowered rates. Our expectation is that rates will be low for an extended period of time. It may not be um, seven or eight years like it was after the financial crisis, but it's certainly two, three, four years, something in that period, and and I would guess three or four years. And they've been quite open about the fact that they probably tightened a little bit too quickly last time. And that going forward, they'll rely less on the Phillips curve and less on expectations and probably of inflation and and really try to generate some inflation and overshoot before, in fact, they raise rates. And I think we've got a long time. And that obviously has implications for certain sectors of the market. And so you have this battle between liquidity which I believe is the prime determinant over time of bear and bull markets. Liquidity, you know, people think it's more earnings and it's economic fundamentals, but really it's liquidity and the tightening or the more permissive, the opening of liquidity that really drives underlying economic activity. And so, again, this heavyweight battle, liquidity is winning. Liquidity will always win. But I think that you bring up a really important point, which is that we've had a rebound economically. We're going through an earnings period right now. It's very difficult to determine what future earnings are going to be. Over 200 companies have withdrawn um, guidance on a going-forward basis. The value of whether they beat or don't beat right now is really negligible because companies really drastically cut their earnings, the companies that are still giving guidance. And so if they're beating, you don't know whether that was a fair metric or not. They're starting to give some forward guidance, What we're seeing economically from companies and what we're seeing from the statistics is clearly a rebound, but that rebound looks like it's starting to flatten out right now and flatten out at a level that's still a good amount below where we were operating before this all happened. So when I think about it, the liquidity environment will continue to be quite supportive of equities for some time. I just think with the gains that we've had and a flattening out economically, that there's going to be a kind of a digestion and consolidation phase that happens with a trend up, with an upward trend now, but not great gains over the next six months. Jeff, let me ask you this question because it it is such a dilemma, a conundrum, really. How are you thinking about earnings in the out years and what are you seeing economically?
0: Yeah, so, uh, obviously, we're, we're flying blind from an earnings perspective. I believe at last count, it's around 200 companies in the S&P 500 have removed guidance. But For this quarter in particular, I think it's a really low bogey. Consensus is expecting negative 44% year-over-year earnings growth. And this kind of suggests that we are going to see earnings beats because a lot of analysts didn't upgrade their expectations as economic data surprises surged over the last few weeks of the quarter. And historically, those two are pretty well correlated. You mentioned this a little bit, but on the same point, if you look at PMIs, whether it's manufacturing or servicing PMIs, they've strongly recovered as the quarter has progressed. And a lot of companies are sounding somewhat more optimistic in respect to recent activity, again, even though you have had that removal of guidance. So I think near term, I I think the bogey is relatively low. But as you move into the second half of the year, I think the comps are going to get a lot more difficult. Right now, Q3 is looking for a 35% increase quarter over quarter. And that's followed up by another 15% increase quarter over quarter. And uh, as you mentioned, Scott, if you have the economy that's going to be choppy here, you know, you're starting to clearly see a deceleration in economic activity across a lot of the areas that've seen a spike of infections, whether it's the South or the, the West, for example. And there's a number of different metrics that you can look at. You could look at open table data, for example, the Dallas Fed mobility tracker, Redbook, same store sales, there's a number of different real-time indicators that have shown that you have seen a decrease of activity. Maybe that affects the ability for the earnings picture to continue to move forward and uh, contain and, and keep this momentum. And if that certainly is the case, um, if you need to have a reevaluation of next year's earnings, uh, maybe multiples are a little bit too lofty at this point. But I do think I agree with you on the fact that it is going to be a range-bound market. Uh, But I do think it's going to be pretty choppy as we kind of fight our way through having this excess liquidity battling an economy that's still struggling to come back online and and reach their pre-COVID ways. One of the things that I, I honestly think that could keep the market buoyant here is continuing to have fiscal stimulus. Now, that's probably my most important concern here over the next month is that we could be running into an issue of policy fatigue, meaning because the markets are up so much, policymakers may not feel the need to come in with a shock and all package, but I do think that would be a mistake. And the two areas that I think are the most important to watch there is the sustaining of that additional $600 per week on top of state unemployment benefits that you're getting from the CARES Act. We, we aren't going to get $600 more on top of state unemployment benefits, but if we can retain $250 or $300 of that. That's going to go a long way to propping up retail sales consumer confidence, and overall consumer spending. And if you look at retail sales, we're almost at pre-COVID-19 levels right now. So this is gonna be a really important thing that I'm looking at. But also the second part of the equation is extension of the Paycheck Protection Program. That small business lending program needs to be easier to access But a lot of these small businesses need to have a second or third crack or bite at the apple, uh, especially in the hardest areas of hospitality and leisure. So I think, obviously, that will go a long way to propping up the U.S. economy, but it can also go a long way for keeping that earnings picture relatively buoyant.
1: There's one thing I want to add, which you didn't talk about, which I think is very important in this next package as well. And the things that you talk about are, are, are critical. And what they do is help us kind of bridge any gap. But the one thing you didn't mention, which I feel strongly about, is this package needs to have uh, support for state, state and local governments. I think people have underestimated the amount of damage that's happened at the state and local level and what the effects of that could be longer term on the economy as those budgets are tightened in every state, red straight states, blue states, it doesn't matter and it's not a political issue. The, the pandemic itself, Okay, has, has, has really put a strain on local and state budgets. And without those at least getting some relief longer term, it's going to be harder to get to a, to a greater and, and a higher sustainable level. So I just wanted to add in, the, add in those comments because in my view, that is also critical
0: in this next package. And quite frankly, if you look at the last number of jobs reports, a lot of the job losses have been from the governmental, the state and local government sectors, because again, they're trying to grapple with lower revenues uh, because of the shutdown of the economy. But uh, I, I, I do think that cooler heads will prevail. I think we will hopefully get a package at uh, $1.5 But uh, again, I think there's going to be a lot of back and forth over the next couple of weeks to keep us all on the edge of our chairs to, to see what the package ultimately comes in at. Obviously, one of the other things I, I think people have been you know, grappling with or struggling with is momentum, right? Momentum has led for most of last year with the market concentrated in a handful of winners, the, the FANG stocks or the FANG M and T stocks, if you want to include Tesla after yesterday's beat. Scott, how are you thinking about growth versus value as you're seeking out new opportunities and what really looks attractive right now where, where valuations are?
1: So I just want to, before we go there, I want to just hit on one point, which is Clearly, there's a group of momentum-oriented stocks, tech, mostly tech stocks, some electrical vehicle you named Tesla. Uh, that's certainly the poster child. And there's, there's a number of things shorter term. I had mentioned at the beginning, while I feel that the kind of gains that we've had are justified, I did have some worries. They were elevated. They weren't extreme. And what I was referring to kind of cryptically were these kind of group of momentum stocks. And so let me just give you a couple of statistics. The S&P on Monday, this past Monday, was up 50 basis points. All eight other sectors were down. The last time that happened, and it's only happened one other time, was February 2000. Another statistic, the NASDAQ 100, which is obviously the top 100 stocks in the NASDAQ, It is now priced at 21% above its 100-day moving average. The last time that happened was March of 2000. So there's no doubt whether it be a function of the shift in part to ETFs, so passives taking, you know, growing at a faster rate than actives and therefore people having to buy up the bigger weights in these stocks to kind of keep that wheel going, or it could be retail. I mean, E-Trade had just uh, just announced that their daily average revenue, otherwise known as DARTs, is up 244% year, year over year. So I think on the retail side, I think on the institutional side, you're getting this start of a little bit of a blow-off phase in some of these names. And that's a danger. It's not at a critical stage yet, but it's one that, that I watch very closely because I've seen that play before. I do think on the shorter term, as you've seen, you're going to get a rotation out of these stocks into some of the more value-oriented stocks, not necessarily the epicenter stocks because those are most affected by the economics that we're talking about that that in some cases um, are flattening. I'll just throw a comment. That I got just this week, and and a lot of my information obviously is coming from uh, the analysts who are talking to the companies directly and what they're saying on their calls. But American Airlines had said their capacity is back to fifty percent. That's great. The bad news is they don't see their capacity going much higher than that in the near term. So that's down pretty substantially. So I'm not talking on the value side necessarily about the epicenter stocks. I'm talking about other parts of the value chain. That where you've seen a, a more extreme divergence, and so I would I would not uh, and do expect to see some better behavior by those more value oriented stocks over the six over kind of the next three to six months. I do not believe, however, that we're in the, we're in for a significant reversal of the growth value trade that we've seen for many years in a lower growth environment with no inflation. Those growth stocks should continue to be the dominant you know, preferred way to invest in the market. So I, I see, it, see it as a rubber band that's too stretched. I'm hopeful that it doesn't get more stretched. I have some concerns about kind of what's happening in a, in a certain group of stocks, which would be a, a further stretching if it does occur. I think that we'll get kind of a narrowing of that and a snapback of some of the more traditional value sectors over the next three to six months. But I think it's a transitory snapback and over the next several years, you will still get, you know, uh, there still will be a preference for more of the growth-oriented stocks in this market.
0: Jessica, you're you're absolutely right. If you look at the earnings season so far, which is admittedly very early on, high-risk kind of EPS beats, which you would think of as a lot of your value names, they've been rewarded by close to 3%, where your low-risk EPS beats, kind of your, your growth and momentum types of names, when they beat, uh, they haven't really shown any more or uh, less underperformance versus the market. And I do agree this. I think given the low bogey here, the optimism that you're hearing from management, given the low visibility, I I do think you certainly could see a value rotation as investors start to price in a continuation of the momentum that we've seen. But given the issues that you've seen with the economy and the the likely slowdown that we're going to see as we get to the dog days of summer, potentially into the fourth quarter, I still think it's going to be a, a, a growth oriented type of marketplace. And One thing that I think you need to see in order to see sustained value leadership is a rising of the long yields, 10-year treasury, for example. And if yields on the long end of the curve couldn't rise, when you've had all of these really, really great beats, economically speaking, I just don't see a situation where it can move sustainably over 1% to, to really drive that value trade. And then also value versus growth tends to run concurrently with PMIs, manufacturing PMI And also the city surprise index is at very high levels. I don't think it's going to get much higher from here, but also uh, I do think PMIs, even though they could move a little bit higher from here, I think they're probably going to level out at this point. So, again, I I, uh, tend to agree with you, Scott. I think value short term, I think growth is still going to be the preferred uh, measure or uh, area of markets as we get later into 2020.
1: Jeff, let me ask you uh, a concept that you've talked a lot about is Fogo. It was a new concept to me maybe you could you could uh, just explain it and kind of uh, quickly uh, tell us your opinion on you know how how that plays into uh, the market and consumer spending as as we go forward.
0: <laughs> yeah F- Fogo so fomo is fear of missing out Fogo is fear of going out. I think that's quite uh, quite a great term to describe what we're seeing here in the u s with a consumer that's not wanting to re-engage with the economy like they did pre-COVID. And you've seen a really increase of cases. So that means a lot of younger Americans have been testing the waters. And that is a key determinant of the lower fatality risk that you've seen here, the lower deaths and hospitalizations. But the cohort I'm really concerned with is the over 55 community. They make up about 40% of U.S. consumer spending. If you put that differently, it's around 28% of the economy. And if you continue to have these increase of cases, absent having some sort of medical breakthrough or a vaccine, um, I feel like this cohort, their spending levels are not going to get back to where they were just six months ago. And if consumers don't re-engage with the economy, even though Main Street, uh, this liquidity bridge has been given by Congress and the Fed, that could last in the second quarter into the third quarter. But as you get to the fourth quarter and the first quarter of next year, if people don't re-engage fully with the economy, a lot of these business models that require close personal human interaction can't survive on 50 75 80% of the revenues that they had before pre-COVID-19. And it creates a situation that you potentially could start to see a lot more bankruptcies as we get to the end of 2020. We're not there yet, but it's obviously something that I'm watching very, very closely, which could, again, keep the economy below where we were coming into February of, of this year. Now, the other big question that people have on their minds here is the presidential elections. Obviously, uh, there could see some broad changes in the markets uh, with a democratic sweep. scott, what are what are your thoughts on the elections? Is the democratic sweep going to be as disruptive as people fear?
1: Well, I don't really think that that you know as as crazy as it sounds, I don't really think that the market has has discounted a democratic sweep. And I say only say crazy because i don't I don't think the market is knows what to make of the election yet. We all see the polls, but I think all of us believe that 100 days or maybe it's 99 days is a really long time. And so despite what the polls may tell us, anything can happen in the next you know, 99 days. So I'm not quite sure that people are willing to discount that into the market in any, in any ways. I do think that if you did get a Democratic sweep, you are looking at uh, some higher taxes, maybe not as high as feared, but you you are looking at some higher taxes. I think it would be good for infrastructure. I think it would be good for the whole idea of onshoring. I do think that it would be a more labor-friendly environment, and that could put pressure potentially on on corporate margins. And then other things, just kind of ticking off a list. I think that... um, from what I've read, there'd, there'd be some, um, and Biden's already talked about this, some real estate reforms and how that works. Uh, I think healthcare would get a lot of attention, and you're probably looking at a, an ACA too. So, you know, a second version of Obamacare. Um, and I do think regulatory costs would go up and, and you'd see an uptick compared to what we're seeing now. So those are the things to think about. And it would be specific by industry that the market would have to discount. But my sense is, that people uh, are aware, but not ready to discount again, thinking about where we were a hundred days ago and where we might might be at ninety nine days from now there's a lot of unknown
0: well, you know I, I think those are all you know very valid points and, and great insight because uh, at this point, back in the election between Obama. And uh, John McCain, it was a pretty close election, but uh, you know, Obama pulled away as we moved towards election day. And it's a key reason why the markets actually don't price in the outcome of the election until three months prior. Usually in the early part of August, you know, through the conventions, you know who the vice presidential candidate is, and then the market can really handicap that outcome. And historically, if the markets move higher during this period into the election, the incumbent party has won, which in this case would be the, the Republicans. And this does look at both first and second term presidents. Um, if the market is down the three months going into Election Day, um, the opposition party wins, which in this case would be the Democrats. So this has been accurate every time since 1984 and 86% of the time since. 1936. So if you're trying to figure out what the outcome of the election is, you may just want to look at the market price action as we get into next month through November. But uh, to your point, Scott, uh, I I do believe that uh, there's a view that Biden may not pull the lever on increasing taxes in a weak economy because, you know, the last thing they'd want to do is jeopardize the business recovery and the job growth. And it could really hurt them in the 2022 midterm elections. But the, maybe the most compelling reason that uh, you, you may not see a, a corporate tax rate increase is that a hike from 21% 1% to 28% on the corporate side would only raise about $130 billion in taxes in a year. And with budget deficits hitting $4 trillion this year, an extra $130 billion in revenue really is kind of insignificant compared to the damage done to investments and job creation. But I, I'm, I actually do think we'll probably see some some tax hikes. Biden has repeatedly said in recent weeks that he is going to raise taxes, even if there's a slow economy. But more importantly, if you think about tax increases, they're much more immediate and you will have some new spending, but that usually takes years to come out. Like infrastructure is a prime example of this. When you have an infrastructure package, that money doesn't actually hit the economy until, you know, a year or a year and a half after the uh, passing of that package. And if you do see a a decrease uh, or an increase of corporate tax rates, that may shave, you know, call it 10% off of the S&P 500. But of course, you know, the key here is that it would have to be a democratic sweep. And by right now, the betting markets are putting that as about a 50-50 probability of happening in November. But uh, 100 days is an eternity when it comes to an election. Maybe the only risk that uh, that isn't talked about on the podcast its part of the wall of worry is the escalation of trade tensions. But I sincerely doubt that you're going to see a big escalation, even though you did see the issues with the Chinese embassy in, in, in uh, Houston earlier this week. But ultimately, I think that's probably more smoke than fire, just because the president is well aware that the health of the economy is a very important issue. Uh, the bedrock or foundation to, to getting reelected. And if you have a continuation of trade tensions, that's going to hit the economy in a, a very vulnerable position.
1: It's probably a bigger risk post the election or post six months from now, because either candidate, at least from a, a, a China perspective, will will tend to be aggressive on trade. So in the shorter term, it's probably less of a risk. I'd agree. Longer term, I think it remains a risk. And of course, COVID. And I think that. Um, You know what happens in terms of schools and what opens, what doesn't, and the reaction to that is going to be a, um, you know, a pretty significant item as well.
0: Well, we're uh, we're running up on about a half hour here. Um, We've uh, hopefully given everybody that's listening a lot of interesting things to chew on. Uh, You know, I guess our final thoughts would be that the markets are accurately pricing in what has happened with the U.S. economy um, due to the huge amount of liquidity that we've seen from not only Congress, but the the Fed as well, expecting a market that's going to be in a trading pattern over the next six months um, with a potential downside of 5 to 10%, potential upside of 5 to 10%, but definitely a a choppy market uh, as we wrestle with a lot of the issues that we've talked about here today. Scott, I want to thank you so much for joining me here today. Your perspective is, is always invaluable. So thank you so much.
1: It's been great. Thank you, Jeff.
0: And uh, I want to thank everybody for listening in. And we sincerely hope that everybody has a terrific and safe rest of the summer. And we hope you will continue to join us throughout 2020. And as always, we welcome any questions, comments, and suggestions, which you can email us at podcast at Thanks again. Please note the following, past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of July 23, 2020, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole, and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics reference have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither Clearbridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.